Well, good morning. I'm Tom Gilligan, director of the Hoover Institution. Welcome to the Hoover Virtual Policy Briefing Series. For more than a century, the Hoover Institution and a world-renowned library and archives have been collecting knowledge and generating ideas that support the pursuit of freedom and endeavor to improve the human condition. Since the COVID-19 pandemic arrived on our shores and resulted in a national shutdown, we've been hosting these important briefings as a way to offer you a chance to hear directly from some of our nation's most distinguished scholars. Now, as we begin to move forward, the challenge lies in finding the balance between protecting the health of our most vulnerable citizens while reigniting our once thriving economy. Our discussion this morning with the medical doctor who is also a health policy expert and an economist will examine the issues surrounding reopening our economy in a safe and productive manner. Thank you all for joining us. As a reminder, we'll be taking audience questions and I wanna encourage you to submit yours using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Today's briefing is from Dr. Scott Atlas and economist John Taylor. Scott is the Dave and Joan Traytel Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Before coming to Hoover, Scott had a 25-year career in tertiary medicine at the top medical centers in the country and served as Chief of Neuroradiology at the Stanford University Medical Center. His recent op-ed published in The Hill was entitled, The Data Is In, Stop the Panic and End the Total Isolation, and it's been read by more than 4 million people and shared over 1 million times. You can find um, A little lost here. You can find it now on our website at hoover.org. John Taylor is the George P. Schultz Senior Fellow in Economics at the Hoover Institution and a professor of economics at Stanford University. John served as Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs for President George W. Bush, who was a member of President George H. W. Bush's White House Council of Economic Advisors and also served as a senior economist at the CEA for Presidents Ford and Carter. John, last month, John published a book entitled Choose Economic Freedom, which was jointly authored with George Schultz. Scott and John, thanks so much for joining us today for this important discussion about reopening the economy. Great to be here. Thank you, Tom. Great seeing you guys. The big, the big challenge now uh, facing the economy is when is it safe to reopen and how do we do it? Uh, let's just try to get the big picture from your different points of view as best we can. Scott, what does the data tell us about the health implications of COVID-19? today. In other words, what do we know now that we may not know, may not, not know two months ago? And John, uh, what do we know about the current economic impact of the virus? Let's start with Scott. Scott. Okay, Tom, sure. Thanks for having me. You know, the, 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 the key here is that we have a tremendous amount of evidence, and that evidence shows, the, shows several things. Number one, we know that the fatality rate from this disease is far lower than what was originally suggested by the early estimates. And this has been validated by studies all over the country and all over the world now. And the second point is we know who, is the, who the vulnerable people are from this. And we're talking about the vulnerable people, both in terms of who will likely get a serious or has a higher chance of a serious illness requiring hospitalization, as well as who will die. And that means chronic people, uh, chronic disease uh, underlying uh, either uh, age or uh, or not age, including particularly uh, obesity and diabetes. And so the data really shows that half the people with the illness are totally asymptomatic, and younger people have very little, if any, risk of serious illness and essentially no risk of death. The other big two points to remember are we've shut down the medical care system 
in a variety of countries all over the world, including the United States, with a single-minded focus on stopping COVID-19 literally at all costs. And this has been tremendously harmful for people with acute and chronic serious illnesses. It wasn't just elective procedures for something like cosmetic surgery. It's actually quite, quite harmful to have done that. Chemotherapies being skipped, stroke patients are not going in, tumors are not getting biopsied, people are skipping their childhood immunizations, for instance. You know, uh, this is a massive healthcare crisis really that's being created. And then the, the last point to remember is that we know, even though we don't know everything about this specific virus, we have decades of knowledge about immunology and virology and even this family of viruses. By doing total isolation, continuing it, we are preventing the development of population-based immunity, which is the most immediately available way to get rid of this threat. So the, the, at this point in time, we have a targeted population that we need to protect very strictly, particularly the nursing home residents. And we can target opening, uh, with that targeting, we can open society in a very knowledge-based way using medical science and common sense and get the economy going again. I see, so the way in which you would change policy from what it is now is that you would have a much more targeted set of instructions for some people to stay at home and stay protected and isolated from others, but open it up more broadly to other people that aren't well, in the- Well, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that's generally true, but it's true. And there are specific measures, which I've outlined in a, in a second piece on the Hill, about what we should do about opening K through 12 schools, various businesses, public transportation, et cetera. It, it's really a much more logical science-based approach than what this total isolation is. Let's get back, let's get to that here shortly. John, what's been the effect of the virus on the economy? It's really the actions taken to deal with the crisis that have affected the economy. The closing, the shelter in place, social distancing, don't fly in an airplane, don't go to a restaurant. Uh, those are the things that seem to have the most damage and, and it's significant. The first quarter looks like 5% negative. The second quarter, which was just begun, uh, maybe 25% negative. And just to be sure, those are annual rates. So the actual decline is less than that. It's, it, the numbers are multiplied by four, but it's still very significant. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, you look at the, the parts of the economy, it's, it's airlines, it's restaurants, uh, it's affected. I think Scott's example where certain parts of medical uh, services are being cut forth because elective operations are not possible. And that's an example where you basically want to encourage people to use medicine. And I think here, I would emphasize that uh, if we can emphasize market openings, as well as closing, just that mantra is important. Mm -hmm. One amazing opening to me is the way telemedicine is being used. We don't have the data on that, but more and more things uh, we can do by the phone or by video. And uh, I think that's going to be a lasting impact at this point. But in the meantime, we don't have good measures of that. And same with the buying things on the internet. Uh, Amazon's doing quite well in terms of sales and uh, others are doing well. Uh, rather than bricks and mortars. And there's, there's actually a lot of policies that can be taken to encourage more of that. And I think uh, we can talk about that some more, but I think that's an important aspect to get the economy opened as well as the, econ the country open. Yeah. 
Scott, back to you and uh, talking about opening strategies. Testing has been held out to be an essential part of any kind of coherent opening strategy. What's the, what's the importance of testing moving forward? Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the role of testing. Uh, testing is very important uh, and, and will be very important for next pandemics or next outbreaks for sure. And in fact, there are really three groups that are really require testing right now. Those three groups are nurse, anyone who goes into or interacts with nursing home and senior care center patients. So that means not just the nurses that come in, but also people that go in and clean the floors and these kinds of things. And this is really the number one vulnerability group since we know that almost 30% of all deaths in the US and in some cases, some states, more than half of deaths are in the nursing homes. We really have to lock down and protect these specific people. And we can do that partly with required testing. The second group that needs testing are the healthcare providers and the emergency responder, pandemic responder people who deal with these, uh, these, these types of people because we need to make sure they're not infecting the other people. Given healthcare workers are literally by definition dealing with people in hospitals who have an underlying disease. And then the third group that needs immediate testing are the patients who come in with a respiratory symptom type of uh, illness, of course, because we need to be able to isolate them and know, know what to do with them. But mm -hmm. the idea that somehow we need widespread immediate testing is simply false to open the economy in an intelligent way. And the idea that contact tracing is necessary now is, is simply incorrect. Contact tracing is done at the beginning. It's a traditional public health measure done at the beginning of a new uh, small confined uh, pandemic. Once tens of millions of people have this infection, which is true in the United States, contact tracing has a limited role right now. Got it. John, uh, what sectors of the economy should be open first? I think the first thing is to emphasize opening. So I would give an example of why not allow many more sales on the internet. There's a, a Supreme Court justice, which is a decision, Supreme Court decision, which is to really raise taxes on internet purchases so that it's a level playing field with brick and mortar. Why not just put that in abeyance for a while, postpone it? And there's a lot of occupational licensing that restricts people from doing things, a lot of in the medical area, but more broadly, why not relax those? Mm -hmm. There's also in, Cal in, the, in the states, AB5 is an example in California, relax those. So the first thing would be to, to take broad measures that allows part of the economy to open automatically. Then I think you look at particular things which it doesn't make any sense to, you know, parks, for example. Um, hiking trails, why not open those? And I think more broadly now what's happening, and I think this is a good sign, some of uh, stores besides grocery stores, hardware stores, even department stores are being opened with some restrictions on how people move around. Mm -hmm. the, the question of education, which I've been involved that, that I think we could be looking at ways to open that, but so far very little on that dimension, but we're looking for more on that yeah. as well. Yeah. Scott, same question to you. What should we be looking at in terms of opening opportunities? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a strategic way to open up things and there's uh, and it really has to be guided by the by the medical evidence. And then, of course, common sense analysis of that. I'll just give you an example. K through 12 schools should be opened up. 
Of course, we understand that they have to be uh, done with consideration of uh, protecting the vulnerable, whether that's in their own families or even among teachers and things like that. But there's no evidence that K through 12 age students have any risk of a significant illness or hospitalization or essentially zero risk of having death. There's no evidence to support some of the leadership positions that have been stated publicly, like how are we gonna have six feet between each student? There's just no evidence to support that requirement. And the reason that's important is not just for the direct educational uh, aspect. It's because when you have students not in their schools, K through 12 age, you're by necessity locking their parents into their homes to take care of them in most cases and, and even to educate them. And you see you're limiting re-entry into society. And similarly, you know, we know that once we, we already have an educated public here on what social distancing is, on we can do better and educate them on who the vulnerable is. We have new standards of sanitization that can be easily required, but you know, mildly ill people, they can assume they have the disease and self-isolate. We can open up most businesses and most uh, you know, public settings, including public transportation with a variety of maneuvers to protect people. And the second part of the equation, to allay their fears. We have a panic stricken public now, many of whom are frozen by, by fear because of really uncertainty and mixed messages from the leadership here. So we really need to be far more focused on delivering a cogent message based on the evidence and common sense on how to reopen. Yeah. Uh, Scott, here's a, a question from Shannon that I think is kind of interesting. Uh, as a student in the state of Michigan, I've seen the devastation to Michigan's economy by the isolation and shutdown policies. What exactly is known about the transmission of COVID-19? While younger people are not affected, are they transmitting the virus? Oh, that's a great question because there's a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of work coming out on this. Okay, so it's, it's, it's not proven yet. But there is indication that younger people are, first of all, far more likely asymptomatic, but also less likely to transmit the disease. Now, this is not proven. I mean, there are, there are actually countries moving forward with sorts of recommendations based on that preliminary data. Uh, like, for instance, the Swiss, Switzerland's uh, Swiss Pediatric Society uh, is saying officially this is the Pediatric Medical Society, that young people who are children don't transmit disease, therefore these things should be opened up. I think it's a little too early to claim that, but there's clearly a lot of uh, difference in the level of ability to transmit the disease. Uh, and of course, we also can, can still invoke these sort of social distancing and sand, uh, uh, sanitization measures on protecting our vulnerable elderly even if we don't use that data, but we know that among themselves, young people are not at risk. And wh why is that important? It's not just that we should spend resources protecting the vulnerable. We also know that the more we let low-risk groups intermingle, we're helping facilitate something that is very important, the so-called population-based immunity that is necessary and the most immediately available tool to eliminate the threat to the vulnerable. We break right. the connectivity of the infection by letting lower risk groups mingle. Yeah, John, there's a concern that by opening the economy too soon, you ramp up the infections and you the curve re-steepens and then you would have to shut down the economy 
uh, uh, re-shut re down the economy. Have you thought through that? What are the implications for the economy if we have to go through another contractionary period? Well, it'd be quite devastating. I think that's why it has to be done in a careful way, I'll put it that way, and uh, taking into account what sectors, what parts, what areas can be opened up uh, rapidly. I think here, uh, I would agree with Scott, the um, evidence is very important, but turning that evidence into public policy is never easy. I'm thinking of the schools, you know, lots of problems of the kids at risk in different parts of the school system. That's not health risk. That's a risk over a long period of time because of poor A-12 schools. And there's, uh, there's choice uh, charter schools, various proposals, but so far not very much. And we have a real problem and it's going to continue. Uh, maybe the use of technology will help it, but that's an example where I think a lot of us know what the problem is, but delivering the public policy uh, changes is hard. So I would put emphasis on that. I think there's a lot of agreement on, uh, amongst people about what to do, but delivering the results is hard. Yeah. Um, Pitch Johnson asked the following question. Scott, this is probably for you. If there are any drugs under development which could, affect it, uh, which could be effective soon in preventing and curing COVID-19, would that greatly affect the pace of opening the society and the economy? What, what, is, what does it mean to have a vaccine for COVID-19? Yeah. So there's two separate <clears throat> sort of topics, vaccines and drugs. Uh, there, there's a tremendous amount of work being done on both. Uh, you know, the vaccine development, of course, uh, is, is viewed, uh, it, it, there's a lot of optimism about vaccines in both the U.S. and in particularly the U.K. being developed. Uh, I think we have to take those into context, though, of, of sort of a mythology that's being built up about vaccines. Vaccines are not a magic wand not necessarily even super effective. We know from previous histories of vaccines that there's a variation in how effective they are even when developed. For instance, influenza vaccine, 40 to 60% effective. Influenza, even in the era of vaccines, has 400,000 to 650,000 deaths worldwide every single year. So it's not true that to somehow think that a vaccine is a magic bullet here uh, secondly, the, the idea of getting a vaccine quickly available, manufactured up, implemented, even beyond the testing for safety and efficacy, that's not going to happen overnight. That's going to be many, many months. It would be a sort of a, a shock if it was available any time before 2021. Medications, and so therefore the point of that is you can't hinge reopening, given the harmful, destructive, and illogical basis of total isolation, it, it really should not hinge on vaccines. Drugs, of course, we all want drugs. There are drugs that are looked at. I think it's very important for the public to understand the bottom line on drugs. Nothing is proven until it's proven. Anecdotal reports, that's not how science is done. They're done with controlled studies. Now, the remdesivir drug, the Gilead drug that's been in the news, uh, there's, there's good data on it. Fauci himself said, you know, it's proven there's a significant amount of improvement with remdesivir. It's an IV drug. It's not a preventive drug. There's all kinds of other drugs being looked at. The word's not in on the efficacy of these drugs. And so you shouldn't assume anything by anecdotal reports. These have to be super solid science. Yeah, got it. John Joe asked, at what, if any point, does the Fed's QE facilities accommodation endanger the status of the dollar as the world's most trusted store of value? It's a very good question. And the... Right now, that whole issue is at risk. The uh, Fed 
Fed's intervention are huge. The balance sheet has increased substantially. Uh, I think some of it has been uh, for good use. Some of the facilities they've set up have quieted markets, but there's quite a bit of intervention. So if you look carefully, this is a little different than the last uh, time in 2008 and 9, and that the actual money supply has increased quite a bit. And I think that's one of the reasons to be concerned. So here I'd say, what's going to happen next? What's the plan for normalization? What's the plan for consolidation? There's very little interest in that in public policy circles. And it's also true of the debt. We've increased the debt a lot. We increased the deficit by three times. What's the plan for, uh, re for unwinding this to getting back to a normal? I'd like to see at the federal level, uh, no tax increases for the foreseeable future. We're gonna reduce the deficit by gradually reducing spending again. So it's those kinds of things that have to be put in place. Uh, people are, are more concerned now uh, about these, but it's not gonna, it's not gonna disappear automatically. The Fed and other central banks for that matter have to have put their mind to how this is gonna work in a way that's reassuring to people. Yeah, got it. Now, Scott, back to you. Jeremy asked the following question. My understanding is that shelter in place and other large scale social distancing policies were done in order to not exceed the capacity of hospitals to provide care. If this were to happen, people would die when they may have been able to survive. Would opening the economy without herd immunity risk overrunning hospitals in some cities? Okay, that's a great question. And the first part of it is, is really to clarify the goal of the policy that, were, that are in place. The goals were to flatten the curves of hospitalizations per day and deaths per day. That was done. The goal of the policy is not and never would be to stop every single infection. But I, I think the, the questioner understands that. The question about would reopening create a resurgence so that it would be uh, you know, another hospital overwhelming? Of course, the goal of, re the, the way reopening is done is really critical here. And I think, again, you must be able to target, because we know who they are, the people who would, if infected, overrun hospital with hospitalizations and have serious illness. This is not the beginning where we really weren't equipped and didn't have an understanding of that. We know how to do social distancing. We know how and uh, we can very smartly and strategically open up various parts of the economy, in fact, many parts of the economy, while still protecting those people that would prevent the over, uh, sort of overwhelming situation that the, the goals are, are, were intended to do and have done. Yeah, got it. Got a couple of questions about policies that were adopted in different countries. And John, why don't you take a shot at the first one? Mark asks, what can we learn about restarting the economy from countries such as Sweden and Japan who have not shut down the economy to the same degree that we have here in the U.S.? I think the Swedish case is a very interesting comparison. It's uh, more of an opening, less of a restriction. You don't want to take that to, to too far because the people's voluntarily have had less... Uh, connection, more social distancing. And the data in Sweden is not that great in terms of deaths, but I think it's gonna be a real important comparison. This is a, something that is very common to statistical work. You have to control for certain things. There's one difference in Sweden, it's the question is addressed to, but there may be a lot of other differences as well. So, so any study needs to be careful about doing that. I think the Japanese case is quite different, it's a different society different setup. But I think the more you have these international comparisons, the better. In fact, there's comparisons within the United States. But in each case, 
try to control as much as possible for the other things. And the case of Sweden is important. People are looking at it very carefully, but uh, but make sure that the comparison is fair when you do that. Yeah, I'm going to ask another question about David. David says, what you seem to be proposing is the Swedish strategy, which is keeping the economy open and try to shelter the vulnerable. Is that a faster route to herd immunity? Is it better than waiting for a vaccine? I assume that's addressed to me. Correct. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, you know, I would say something. First of all, the Sweden experience, as John correctly noted, is, you know, it's, it's very simplification. Uh, it's a gross simplification to start saying that one country is different from another based solely on their isolation policy. Now, to the question specifically, and by the way, the data on Sweden is really not bad at all. It, it's actually quite good. Uh, but in, in terms of uh, the, the, the specifics of the question, absolutely true that while Sweden did do social distancing and other things, it is highly likely that their uh, route toward population immunity is further advanced. The more you isolate people, the less you allow for herd immunity. It's actually, there's something interesting in the U.S. data about this, and that is that in New York, because it was an epicenter and very intense living situation and difficult to do isolation, even though total lockdown was their strategy, we see from their own antibody data that a shockingly high really, 25% of people have antibodies. And now I, I have a note into the New York uh, government uh, people to get the most recent data. That's already a week old. But we know that there's a much higher percentage of people with antibodies out there. That means previous infection. And by all knowledge of previous immunology, that's going to offer protection. It's unexpected that it doesn't offer protection. It's possible, but it's unexpected. So I think that the answer to the question long-winded uh, cutting to the chase, uh, sorry, it is that, yeah, Sweden is, is highly likely to have made far more progress on population immunity at a far lower cost. Yeah. John, back to you on the economics. Cal asked, does a payroll tax holiday make sense at this point? And I guess the broader question is, are there other fiscal or monetary policies that ought to be considered at this stage of the reopening? Yeah, I think something on the payroll tax is still worth considering. Uh, if it reduces the marginal rate, and that's that's important, which most proposals will do. It's one year, two year, three year. But I think it's important to match this with something on the other side. So uh, Scott Minard has a proposal where these tax rates are reduced, but at the same time, you increase the retirement age over time. And so it's really a it's it's neutral in terms of the budget, and that deals with the important reform. It also encourages the right incentives. I think in terms of tax policy, I'd like to see some kind of a pledge that we're not going to have a tax increase for the foreseeable future. That's a, you know, that's a politically difficult thing to do, but I think it could be very, very beneficial to the economy. It's, it offsets these negative numbers that I referred to. It's, mm -hmm. it's not going to be magic, but it'll be much more of an, than people think. So more generally, anything we can do that's pro-growth, so that has to do with more cost benefit and regulations. Mm -hmm. That has to do with making sure maybe we postpone the implementation of AB5 in California. Mm -hmm. Occupational licensing, we're more, um, re we relax those for the time being. All those things will be beneficial to the economy. And, and to some extent, it requires a specific statement. This is the approach we're taking. These mm -hmm. are economic market opening things. These are an example of what I mean, opening markets 
which would be very beneficial, and I think more emphasis on that. It's not like the private economy is not doing anything. There's inventions, there's telemedicine, there's use of the internet. There's all over the place that things are happening. And my and education, it's, it's happening as we speak. Uh, so it's, it's an important thing. And if we let the private sector do that, I think it'll be a, it'll be a real, real benefit. Yeah, we get a couple questions along those lines. And I'll read the questions and let both of you take a shot at this. Andrew asks, after, after reopening, do you expect the American economy to go back to normal? Or will the COVID-19 pandemic to produce structural changes? Henry asks it, it very succinctly, what does normaliz normalization look like, both economically and socially? John, why don't you start? Sure, I think there's gonna be lots of changes and I just would mention education, for example, Scott was talking about the K-12 schools being closed. Well, I have a, a granddaughter in fifth grade and it's amazing what she's able to do uh, on the internet. So I think it's the, the ultimate situation is gonna be different and they're gonna be used more of it. In, in the education at college level, it's the same kind of thing where you know video is, Zooming is not, the best way to interact with kids, but there's things you can't do otherwise. So it's going to change that. I think medicine is going to change. Uh, we'll see how much telemedicine is changing. I think uh, throughout the economy, I would say these are positive changes if we let them happen, if we don't prevent them from happening. And uh, there's ways you can prevent it. So the, the public sector's view here is very important in letting these changes occur in the best way. But I think that I think things will change. I think it'll be different hopefully for the better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, those are very important points John made, although the point about his own granddaughter, that's a little bit, she's pretty exceptional, I'm sure. So that's not a reflection of every average granddaughter. But, you know, I would say that the, uh, you know, that's no question telemedicine has always been sort of available and is being used uh, all over the world even before this, but in, in a far less uh, prevalent role than it, than it could be and should be. And it's actually technology-based solutions to diagnosis as well as treatment all over the world. And this is going to explode now. But I also think the new normal, from my way of thinking, is, is, is that question that you read is more based upon will we be, everyone will be walking around with masks. Will we have to do X, Y, and Z and we're not going to be able to hug our grandchildren or whatever. And I think this is where fear has infected the public policy. Fear, uh, really understandable fear from our leaders has really uh, sort of replaced some of the logic that's needed. It's, it's unlikely, we will, it is likely we will have new standards for uh, sanitization, we will have new warning signs in restaurants, we will have all kinds of things. We will have stricter control of access to nursing homes, all kinds of things like that, better control of sanitization and standards in hospitals even. Right. But I, I think it's, uh, you know, so it, it's probably true that public transportation will see a lot of people wearing masks, even if it's not required, because there is an element of fear uh, right. as well as some validity in using face coverings. But in terms of requiring uh, all restaurants to have uh, six foot spacing between individuals and restaurants, I just think that's not science-based. And I think eventually logic and science will prevail in the public right. policy as the people get more, more used to going back and re-entering. Yeah, just like after 9-11, it changed the safety protocols at airports. And now we all live with that, but we forgot what it looked like back then, right? Yeah, I think this is actually a very good point. I said early on, it would not shock me if while we're already waiting in airports for two hours, 
they might add, it's conceivable to add some sort of uh, health screening part of your profile. You already are showing IDs, passports. These things are all sort of still evolving. Nobody really knows what the future will look like in that sort of, uh, in that sort of sector. Yeah. Jose asked uh, how we can plan should a similar crisis happen in the future. What should we do differently for the next time? Yeah, it's a, go ahead, John. Uh, just very quickly, I think it's not just the economics and the medicine, it's the security issues, it's international diplomacy issues, it's travel issues. And I think that's probably the most important thing to be working on right now. We're doing some stuff at Hoover, some people with national security experience. Here I'd say, let's not, again, maybe I say this all the time, let's not forget the economic side of this because you want our, our allies to be strong uh, economically. You want to have uh, good trade in, in uh, products. There's a concern now about the supply chain. We need to restrict the supply chain on certain pharmaceutical goods. So that's a that's a real concern. Let's not try to go in that direction. But, you know, 9-11 is a good example. I worked a lot on the economics about that. And by the way, economics was the only subject that got an A grade in that whole 9-11. <laughs> so I can say that in retrospect, but let's not forget the economics as we consider what to do, what what precautions to put in place in the future. Got it. Scott? Yeah, yeah, I would say that sort of there's a new recognition that health security is a big part of national security. And I think this is already a, a big focus. The, the idea of not just mobilizing resources, which this is uh, what's happened now has been very good at a new understanding of how to do that, learning on the job really, mobilizing, having availability of even low tech, but also some high tech things and drugs. Uh, also, we, we're learning and are planning, a lot of work's being done right now, including at Hoover with myself and others, on how to make sure that the supply chain of healthcare related things, particularly drugs, but not only drugs, Mm -hmm. are understood, first of all, and, uh, you know, are, are really put into place so that not just stockpiles, but understanding the interdependencies of both allies and adversaries, and also understanding that interdependencies is actually a good way to stop conflict in, yeah. in a variety of other foreign policy things, this is true. And I think so, uh, there's a heightened security and a lot of focus on how to make sure we're ready in a very nimble way to do the necessary innovation for even unknown threats of the future. Yeah, interesting. Uh, Damien asked a kind of a hard question here, but I'm gonna throw it out anyway. He says, no one is directly addressing a strategy to bolster consumer confidence necessary to drive economic growth. In other words, people have to be willing to go back to markets, right? How do we, uh, what do we do while COVID-19 cases and fatalities continue to grow? How do we make consumers comfortable to use markets again? So that's a, a very good question. I'll give just an example. We had this policy as part of the CARES Act to send money to people, $1,200, $2,400, hoping they will spend it. Some of them will just save it. That's the experience we've seen before. Well, at least the ones that can deal with it, why not go out and spend that money and and emphasize this is to spend. This is, it's it's good to have the security, but we want to get that into the economy. I think also the the mantra that you can buy things in different ways. Some of the openings of stores will help, but also, uh, Amazon, et cetera, will help. That's part of the economy. So mm-hmm. more emphasis on, on spending. And it's not just consumer spending, of course. It's business spending. When we open up for more construction, that's investment. That's, that's good. And, and I think permitting, for example, there's things that the, the government can do to allow more kinds of construction, to allow, to, to, to allow 
actions to take place now. There's a wide range of things, but I think the mantra is confidence in spending and uh, stimulating the economy is very important. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, go ahead, Scott. No, I was just going to add, I, I, think, I totally agree with everything John said, as well as a big part of this is really making sure that our leaders understand and communicate the logic behind opening and making feel people feel safe that we are doing this in a, in a strategic, intelligent way based on the science and the data in terms of the healthcare side of things. People have to feel very comfortable with re-entering. There's a tremendous amount of fear and fear is generally based on uncertainty. Got it, great. Uh, gentlemen, we reached the end of our time. Uh, concluding comments, Scott, you wanna go first? Yeah, okay, I would just say, uh, you know, when, when people look at uh, what's being said, you, you got to be careful about what, what you read and understand that there's a tremendous amount of knowledge now about what's happening here. Don't just rely on the sort of sensationalistic headlines extracted uh, from various projections. We have a lot of knowledge, fundamental medical science, and therefore really a, a very attainable goal of ending what is really now becoming a very destructive, harmful uh, sort of policy, total isolation, and re-entering in a very smart and safe way. John? Well, thanks for doing this. Uh, appreciate it. It's great to be together with Scott. I think the idea of medicine and economics together is very important. It allows me to stress it's opening markets, opening the economy. It goes along in a sensible way with uh, good, good models of the economy, good models of medicine. And that's what I would stress more than anything. Great. Scott, John, thank you very much for your perspectives this morning. What a great conversation. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Our next Hoover virtual policy briefing will be Thursday, May 7th at 11 a.m. Pacific and 2 p.m. Eastern time with John Yu, who will discuss COVID-19 and federalism. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and has served in all three branches of government. You can join Thursday's briefing at the same link you signed in on today. And you will find the Hoover Institution's on online resources at hoover.org, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us today. Please stay healthy, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Good day. <laughs>